welcome to God Trip Podcast, a podcast about cults, religious weirdos, and strange rituals. This is our second episode. Today, Todd and I will be talking about Mithras, an ancient Roman mystery cult. How you doing, Todd? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Good. So tell me, tell me what you know about Mithras. Yeah, I mean, Mithra was in uh, competition with Christianity. It was a the Rolling Stones to Jesus' Beatles. <laughs> awesome. uh, it started almost at the exact same moment as Christianity. It spread throughout the Roman Empire like Christianity did, and it left absolutely no written records, but loads of sculpture and statues and artifacts. Most people interpreting what it was like or do we have, like, references to it from other texts? There, there's a lot of references uh, in Roman writing, Roman literature, but it's always from outsiders. Okay. But for one thing, they seem to have maintained the secrecy, and they had all their rituals underground in temples that are essentially artificial caves, and they went out of their way for people not to know about them. Was it because it was um, not accepted by the emperor, or why were they in caves? Well, Constantine may have been a a Mithraist. Secrecy was sort of part of Roman mystery religions to begin with. Uh, It was kind of like a club, you know, and part of the fun of a club is, you know, stuff that nobody else outside it the club knows. Okay, like the Freemasons or something. Exactly, exactly. Most of what we know about Mithraism comes from their statues, inscriptions on statues, and uh, oddly, graffiti in their temples. Okay, can you tell me about some of the statues and reliefs? Yeah, every temple's got one central panel behind the altar that generally shows Mithra slaying a bull. It's called the uh, Tarakthani, and it's the central image of the religion, like the crucifixes for Christianity. Okay, so you said Mith- when, Mithra was slaying a bull. So Mithra is a person? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Basically, what this image looks like is a, a hippie in a cave wearing an oversized toboggan and stabbing a bull in the neck. <laughs> Okay, I can picture that. And one thing about Mithra that is exceptional in Roman iconography is that he wears pants. Oh. And he's dressed like a, an Anatolian shepherd, uh, Anatolia being what modern Turkey was called in the ancient world. Okay. While he's stabbing the bull in the neck, there is a dog and a snake lapping up its blood on one on one side. And a scorpion sniffing at his, the bull's gonads on the other. Whoa, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, without written records, how are you going to interpret that? You know? <laughs> right. And he's got two little buddies called Caltes and Caltopates who carry either torches or shepherd's crooks, one pointed up or one pointed down. They're generally, they're sort of his attendants. There's a couple other images that may or may not appear next to the bull killing. On one image, Mithra is having dinner with the sun, and another one is Mithra being born out of a rock, sometimes a flaming rock, and sometimes the statue will be 
would have been hooked up to where it sprayed water like a fountain. I wonder if the legend of Gilgamesh comes from this story, because Gilgamesh, I think he's born out of a rock near a river, and he subdues, or I think he tames a bull. I can't remember if he kills it or subdues it, but it really sounds a lot like Gilgamesh, and that story came out of um, the Middle East. Well, of course, a couple thousand years before this. Oh, okay. But origins of Mithraism are just extremely controversial. The Romans didn't, people who followed the religion didn't call themselves that. They called, they would say they were from the Persian religion. Oh, okay. And and the Romans believed that they were practicing Zoroastrianism. But modern scholars tend to think that it was something connected but different, that had been westernized or something. There are a few connections to Zoroastrianism, other than the fact that Mithras is a figure in both, and Mithras also a figure in Hinduism. There's another strange character uh, that they find associated with Mithraic temples a lot. Uh, it's a, a statue, sometimes life-size statue, of a naked winged guy with a lion head who's got snakes crawling up his body and he's holding a key ring. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's metal as hell. One or two of these statues has the word Ahriman, the name of the Zoroastrian devil, essentially. A-H-R-I-M-A-N. Oh, okay, Ahriman. Yeah, Zoroastrianism was sort of a dualist, like Christianity. It was the big god who was a Huru Mazda, and then the devil, which was Ahriman. Maybe the Myth- Mithra people were also into the dualism aspect? Could be, yeah. And let me ask you this. How many of these temples were they there, like these cave-like temples? Hundreds. Okay. And were, mean, were they only they're in... they everywhere. Were they, I've been in one. That's pretty cool. Were they? Are they only in Rome, in the Roman area, or the Roman Empire? Like, did they span a large area? From Syria to Britain. Wow. So there was one in Britain? Or more than one? Uh, I've been to one in London. I had a sandwich in there. Very cool. Um, it was uncovered in the 50s by Nazi bombs. And uh, right in the financial district, they decided to make a park out of it. It's at street level now, but it was underground. Pretty interesting place. It's nice to hang out. We're Roman cult temples among skyscrapers. A particularly large number of these things clustered on the Rhine, which... Since the main adherence to Mithraism was the Roman military, that, of course, would have been a heavily militarized area. Right. Uh, be the frontier, on the frontier of the Germanic barbarians. So how do we know who was um, who were members? Uh, graffiti inscriptions and the occasional mention in Latin literature. And they were mostly and soldiers? You'll see, like, fortresses where they weren't really Roman towns. They'll still have a Mithraic temple. I always thought it it was almost exclusively military religion. Yeah. I think there's a, one reference by Latin author named Porphyry that people have interpreted as noting a female Mithraist, but a lot of scholars think that he was mistaken on that. Okay. And so they were almost all or probably all ma- male? Oh, yeah, including uh, some people think Constantine 
himself was a Methodist before he converted to Christianity. Well, it's one reason, I mean, you'll hear that Methodism was a major competitor with Christianity, but you can't really have a universal religion of a boys' club, you know, that's uh, exclusive to one demographic. Yeah, that's not going to catch on, probably. Yeah, yeah. Mithra and Christ were frequently associated with late Roman sun worship. The Invincible Sun is what they called him, Sol Invictus. Since Mithra seems to be somehow connected to the sun, in almost every image of him, he's with the sun. He's having dinner with him in one image. Then interpreted it. It could be sort of a subsect of a larger sun cult that was going on. and But a lot of times you will hear in popular history that Mithra, that Christmas, Christ's birthday, was put on December 25th because that was Mithra's birthday. But in the truth, that was how the Romans, what the Romans considered to be the birthday of the sun. In other words, a new year. So it was natural to have celebrations around the new year. Mm-hmm. It was also the larger, within the larger Roman festival of Saturnalia, which was, I think, like the adjusting the solar and lunar calendar at the end of the year. Oh, okay. Twelve days of Christmas and all that. Mithraism itself was one of the larger, one of many Asian mystery cults that uh, middle-class Romans would adopt because they were sort of exotic. It was like joining a club. They were open to, oh, you could only be in them if you were initiated, and you had to keep everything secret from everyone. Okay, that's what, yeah, I read that that's, I didn't really know what a mystery cult was, and I read that that mystery just meant secret. It doesn't really mean mystery. It just yeah. means, it means that they just yeah. kept it to themselves. Yeah, there were a lot of ini- uh, rituals of initiation in this cult. Yeah, there was like seven levels from Mithraism. I think maybe that showed up in graffiti somewhere. The names of them on there would be like, oh, you've, you've reached the eagle level, or you've reached the bull level. It sounds like the Cub Scouts to me. but uh, <laughs> Like they got patches? <laughs> yeah. I read somewhere that people, some people might have interpreted that there were seven because they related to the seven chakras, and that was like an Eastern thing. Other thing I read was that there were the seven celestial bodies that they were aware of at that time, like the seven planets? Yeah, there's a lot of research, particularly in the last 20 years, that this is sort of an astrology-based religion. Okay. I've read one guy who had the theory that Mithra was the constellation of Orion, the hunter. Okay. Slaying the bull, who would be Taurus. Uh, I don't really understand that much about astrology, though comment on it, but there have been the three temples excavated that have the 12 signs of the zodiac on the floor. The ceilings are usually blue, sometimes with stars or animals painted on it, so it does seem to have some sort of celestial ramifications. That sounds really cool. I'd like to see one of those. It sounds really awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, and most Mithraic temples fit maybe two dozen people tops, and they would all sort of recline on stone benches along the walls. Romans ate lying down. They can generally tell 
can tell what they ate just from the bones that are found around the temples and strangely the number of cherry pits that are found near Mithraic temples indicate that midsummer when cherries are ripened was when a lot most of the rituals cluster around. Yeah, if you're a solar religion, summer solstice would be the longest day, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, the seven graves were recorded hundreds of years later in a Byzantine, medieval Byzantine text. Knowledge of this cult must have survived far longer than the cult did, because by 400 AD, it was pretty much gone. Okay, so it lasted from, like, the time of Jesus to about 400? Yeah, about from the time of Jesus till when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Okay. Where was Byzantium? Once again, centered on modern Turkey. Oh, okay. The, when the Roman Empire split in half in, around the uh, 4th century, the eastern half lasted far longer than the western half and ultimately turns into the Byzantines. And then when Christianity... Uh, at one point, Christianity split between East and West, and so you get Orthodox and Catholic with Christianity to this day. And uh, that was at the Council of the Nicenes. Now, see, that was uh, 312. Yeah, that was one of the one where they figured out, or they had a meeting to decide uh, exactly who Jesus was, and uh, whether he was God or a man or a little bit of both. They chose a little bit of both. It was. Uh, Connected with the Arian heresy, which was very popular at the time, and said Jesus was, was a man who just happened to be particularly holy. Ultimately, Mithraism and Christianity both started off at the same starting point. They do share a lot in common. I mean, for instance, Mithraic rites were usually on Sundays as well, as, of course, Christianity even though it's based on Judaism, where the Sabbath is on Saturday, it's switched to worshiping on Sunday. A lot of it is Roman popular religion as opposed to official religion, because everybody, depending on the emperor, who the emperor was, most Romans technically treated the emperor as if he was a god. You made sacrifices to the emperor. Judaism and Christianity would consider that blasphemy. Right. Which which is why Rome had which is why they had so many problems with Rome. Ironically, uh, there were also a lot of Romans that were part time Jewish. They would practice the Jewish religion without actually being circumcised and converting. It was another exotic Asian cult to them. Some of the things I've read about ancient Rome and people practicing is that they might, for instance, they might become Christian, they might convert to Christianity, but they still would go and make sacrifices at the temple of some goddess or god just to, like, hedge their bets. <laughs> like, yeah. like they weren't very faithful is, is a way to think of it, but mostly they just probably were, they were used to making sacrifices to these, these Roman gods and goddesses, and, mm -hmm. and they converted to Christianity, but they probably didn't see any problem with also honoring their past gods and goddesses just to make sure their crops were good that year or whatever they were worried about. Oh, yeah, it's just like there's almost a recreational aspect to it, you know? People who uh, shop for religion leave one, enjoy a new one, just constantly. Even Augustine, 
was guilty of that before he became a Christian. Well, I think a lot of contemporary people do that. Um, they they might you know have a little bit of Hinduism on their altar and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Christianity. Yeah, it's a Trumpa back in Boulder called that spiritual materialism. Chogum Trumpa Rinpoche. Yeah, yeah. He called he called he called religious shoppers spiritual materialists. That was his term for it. Mm. That's a good term. So the Romans were doing a little bit of that, the ancient Romans. When you're not in a monotheistic culture, there really isn't any barrier to doing that. Right. And they had lares and panates, too, which means lares and panates were uh, your own personal house god. They find a lot of small statues and tokens and things like that that are from people's private personal gods. Right. Who looked over their own personal private affairs. Mm-hmm. Oh, even in uh, in Roman Britain, particularly, I think a lot of these things survive in Bath, and they found them outside the Thraic temples, would be like curse tablets, where somebody writes to a god requesting that they mess with one of their enemies, or something like that. Okay. Or, I... they, write, or they write the name of an enemy backwards. I think I've, I remember reading something about this, some archaeologists finding things like that. And th- there'd be, like, maybe one tablet that was, like, really sweet, and then another one that would be, like, kind of damning their enemies. Some of them were nasty. That must be fun to read. Yeah, town of Bath, where a lot of them have particularly been excavated. The Romans had a philosophic religions, too, like Neoplatonism or Stoicism. Technically, if you were someone... In the late Roman Empire, you could have three different religions on three different levels. Just to cover so, your, cover all your bases. <laughs> yeah. Have a public religion. You could have philosophic religion to discuss philosophic matters. And then you could meet with all your friends in an underground temple and have a party at night. Well, I was thinking about and, what you said about how the Christians and the uh, Mithraics would have their services on Sunday. And he mm-hmm. and Mithra was the god of the sun or he was related to the sun. What I read was actually I read like some contradictory stuff. Like some things I read said that he was light and that sun was his chariot. So he wasn't the sun, he was the light. And then other things I read said that he was the sun. So or that he was like related, he was connected to Apollo. Interesting that there was like a a debate about whether he was just the light or he was the sun. Since Sunday was the day of the sun, and I read that, like, the seven initiations, uh, the initiations that were seven were, I was saying before, like, they could be the chakras, but they could also be the, the seven celestial bodies that represented each day of the week. So those were the seven that they knew of at that time. And it makes sense that they would, if, if Mithra is the guy related to the sun, then they would they would worship on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure why the Christians would also choose that day if the Jews chose Saturday. The, with the Christians choosing Sunday, I would imagine it would be because they would associate Christ with the power of the sun. And another strange aspect of of Roman religion that affects both these ones, so we'll talk about Christianity and Mithra, is that in Rome, they didn't take a religion seriously unless it had been around since for hundreds of years. They had to relate their Mithraic rituals to Zoroastrianism in order to give it street cred. 
And the same thing with Christianity. They had to claim a background in Judaism or average Roman would have just thought it was some sort of off-the-wall superstition, some sort of new age lunacy. I think a lot of people feel the same way now. They're like, um, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are not as taken as seriously because they've only been around a couple hundred years. Well, that's true, yeah. Or Scientology has only been around, you know, 50 years. That makes perfect sense. The Romans felt the same way. You needed a pedigree to have a legitimate, serious religion. Mithraeus, Mithra, they called themselves Persians, even though they weren't ethnically Persian whatsoever. I've always found that to be a strange thing, because it was a military cult. Rome spent a very good part of its, big part of its existence being at war with the Parthians right there in Persia. They just wanted to connect back to the ancient religion, so they weren't... So that they had some kind of, like, basis, like, mystical basis in ancient history. But nowhere in Persia or India, whenever Mitra is mentioned, it's never associated with a bull. Oh, okay. Well, I know the Zoroastrians were very gentle people, and they didn't believe in hurting animals, so maybe that was more of a Roman characteristic? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, literally sacrifice animals the temple, the great temple. As a matter of fact, I think, like, sacrificer was like a job in Rome. And, uh, and of course, that's why Christ went ballistic in the temple with the money changers. You had to buy an animal to sacrifice, and they were exploiting that. Sacrificer was a job. That's pretty, that's amazing. So, like, the psychos could channel their psychotic nature. Yeah. It's a whole ritual about it. I mean, even today, Judaism is kosher. means something can sacrifice or dispatched according to the proper rituals. I mean, that I, I just used to know to dispatch animals was in, uh, in Judaism, but I've forgotten it. From what I read, the, the way that the bull is de- being depicted as being killed was considered very brutal and violent at that time in Rome. Like, they, they saw it as kind of violent and like a vanquishing of, of the bull in a violent way. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, when you see these taroctonies, they're definitely violent attention from the sculpture. I mean, there might be other scenes from myths, from the myths, but that was always there. I, I read that the the scorpion attacking the scrotum was yeah. I read an interpretation that that was related to the the um the constellation Scorpio mm-hmm. and, and that Scorpio is related to the the scrotum. You know mm-hmm. how every every constellation has like like Gemini is somehow related to lungs maybe because there's two sides like twins or whatever. But Scorpio has something to do with one of the symbols that it relates to on the human body is the scrotum, and that the interpretation I read was that the that it was it was attacking the part of the bull that is bestial, sexually bestial, and so that the part of this myth was that it was conquering the the physical, like that you are that by conquering the bull, you're conquering the physical part of yourself and you can be more connected to the higher, your higher nature, your more intellectual higher nature, if that makes sense. That almost sounds like Gnosticism, which, of course, was popular at this time as well. Okay. 
And I've heard the lion-headed man has been compared to Gnosticism, which is, of course, transcending the material world. Yeah, most of, like I read that book about mushrooms and Mithra. They really interpreted a lot of the symbolism and the initiate what they could find out about the initiation rites as being like vanquishing your physical being and embracing your god godliness and your godliness was like your higher intellect and um i mentioned that to you before that i read a a book about mithras that was written by a a an italian fascist and um and they think like nietzsche was probably influenced by that idea that that you know that mithras the initiation rites in Mithras would take a person, like a regular person, a, a earthly, bestial person, and turn them into a god. So that was like the the selling point of Mithraism was that that you could like rise up the initiation levels to godliness, which was considered like a higher intellectual being. That would be also the sort of thing. I mean, even though mystery cults are mysterious by nature, that is, from what we know of stuff like Gnosticism and more esoteric Christianity at the time, that is the sort of theology that was popular. Okay. You know, transcending the body and... uh, Except for in the Christ in the Christian religion, you are supposed to be humbled, and in the Mithraic, from what I read, uh, the interpretations that I was reading is that you would become a god on earth or after death. No, on earth. I know, and this goes on with what you were speaking of a few minutes ago about uh, Mithra being associated with light. Um, <clears throat> when he's having dinner with the sun, they're sitting on uh, the bowl bloody hide, and sometimes there's a caduceus in the general vicinity, and they have what appears to be flames coming out of them. Wow, trippy. Yeah, the whole thing an acid trip, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This book I read said that there was archaeological evidence that they were using mushrooms, that they were using uh, alcohol and mushrooms in in their initiations, like uh, psychedelic mushrooms, to allow people to open themselves up to the the whole universe, like the vastness of the universe. Amanitas, well, that's been uh, associated with uh, Christianity as well in the past. John of Patmos, for instance, wrote the Book of Revelations. It's been noted that Amanita muscaria mushrooms are particularly plentiful on Patmos. Patmos, where he wrote the Book of Revelations. And, uh, oh, I was just thinking about how John of Patmos, who wrote the Book of Revelations, uh, supposedly in a cave on the island of Patmos in the Agium. Apparently, that island is notorious for the amount of uh, psychedelic mushrooms grow on it. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Having read Revelation. It does sound like the Mithra worshippers or cultists did want to transcend mortality, but it doesn't seem like the army would be the sort of place you'd go for converts to that. Except for the the way that they, from what I read of interpretations of their initiation rituals, they were very physical. Like you had to go through physical trials to get to become a god. And that would be attractive to military people who are already probably strong. And what I read was that the initiation rituals, they were emp- empowered by the mighty strength of all strength, and um, so they had to deal with very difficult circumstances, very hot, very cold, very difficult physical 
situation. So, mm-hmm. like, the initiations were meant to be physical, almost like hazing, like a fraternity hazing. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. yeah like, they really yeah. put them through the ringer. That was a way for them to, I guess, rise above their, their physical bestial nature was to be strong enough to, to deal with. One thing was they, they actually went through a, a ritual where they pretended to kill someone. Yeah. And I, I don't know what that means, but maybe they had to fight somebody until they could, like, overcome them. But it was, there was, they, what I read was it was a simulation of a murder. Also, they had to... Um, be sort of symbolic human sacrifice. Yeah. According to what we gather from the ancients, and especially from Nonus the Grammarian, the neophytes of the Mithraic mysteries were required to undergo trials such as passing through fire and water and showing their endurance to cold, hunger, and thirst. According to some other sources, the neophyte was involved in a simulated slaying of another person in order to test his impassibility and resolve. Much of the ritual would have been based on the lost myth of Mithra, and I'm wondering if that had something to do with the lost part of the myth. Yeah, interesting. And one thing I've, I mean, we obviously don't know what their weekly rituals look like, but I know that in Christianity, the feast used to come before the service, and after doing that for a while, they discovered that they should probably have the feast later on, so everyone is hammered by the time the service starts. And, uh, Hilarious. And, yeah, it was, uh, that modern Christian tradition is kind of backwards from the way it started, but... Well, I know it's... Would- if you're going to use behaviorism, if you want to keep people around, you have to feed them last. If you feed them first, then they're going to go home right away. Yeah. Even in church today, like, after people take communion, there's always a line of people leaving before actually the service is over. You're supposed to wait for the priest to finish and the priest leaves first, but yeah. a lot of people take their communion and leave. That is sort of the central part of the ritual, right? The Yes. Of Christ's body and, uh, and blood. Yep. Mm-hmm. There was blood in there was blood in the Mithras ritual too. It said they were baptized in bull's blood. Oh, Tarabolium. Yeah, I've seen reconstruction of that device. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of like this wooden structure where you uh, walk the bull up to the top of it, and the guy stands underneath, and they sacrifice the bull over top of him. Oh, I haven't thought about that in years, but uh, I think they actually do have some physical evidence of those things. That sounds so metal. <laughs> yeah. And well there's I mean we were talking I mean there were so many things in the Tarotony that could be interpreted as astrological symbols. He's got the twins there. Okay. He's got the scorpion, the ball. In some sculptures there are a lot of animals that are around Mithra, but most of them make no sense astrologically. Like, they have him, he's been shown with lobsters or dolphins. Oh, and, wow. And uh, it's not consistent enough, other than what we've already talked about, to really place any concrete myth around it. Mm-hmm. And again, like Christianity, how do we know that the Mithra people in one place are doing the same things as Mithra people in the other place? The initiation levels had some animals, too. So I'm just going to read those off because I don't think we've covered that yet. Um, uh, the first level was the raven or the crow. 
Korak. The second one was the occult level beast, interpreted to mean occult. So you started out at the raven level, and then you moved up to the occult level. And then the third one was the soldier level, or the miles level. And I heard that the miles level was the most common. The two that were the most common were the soldier level and the lion level, or the leo. So Miles and Leo were the two most common, soldier and lion. But if you moved up, you moved up to the Persian level, Perses or Persian. And then second to highest was Sun. So actually the Sun's envoy, um, Heli, Heliodromos. And the last one or the top one was Father or Pater. And um, each, what I read was each of these caves would have one Father or one Pater. Yeah, the top one was... Was what again? Father or Pater. That's like the Eagle Scout level. Right. Uh, <laughs> you have to be a super duper Mithra nerd to get to that level. <laughs> Almost all these things we heard talked about the period iconography. The lion headed guy. Uh huh, the Leo. And what was that? Did you say Beelays? So Raven or Korax, Occult or Cryphes, C R Y P H I E S which is translated to mean occult, and then soldier, which is translated from miles, M-I-L-E-S, and then lion, or Leo, Persian, or Perses, son's envoy, or Heliodromos, and father, or Pater, or Potter, however you say it. Pater. Okay, Pater. Yeah, that's, it's kind of like the Shriners is what it sounds more like to me, because, I mean, you're, you're claiming to worship in a, a Persian religion, but Persian is a level in this religion. Right. And it's like Shriners and their fezzes and dorky little cars. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. That makes it seem a lot less cool. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a more cool depending on your perspective at the time. <laughs> without the mushrooms and cool caves. Yeah. Here's a here's something I read about the Persian level. So if you were okay, so when you were when you were reaching the the mile miles level or the soldier level, they would offer you a sword and a crown, and you were supposed to take take the sword, but decline the crown and say, "My crown is Mithra." <laughs> that does sound really military. Yeah. Well, the word itself means basically contract or to bind or an oath. Yeah. I read that like Mithras, because Mithras was associated with the sun or the sun's light, mm-hmm. that this, that Mithras could see everything and knew all truth. And so that had something to do with like, if you made a contract, then it was honorable because something about being truthful and knowing all truth and being honest. Oh. So it's so sort of like proto-capitalist god or something, you know. Yeah. In Rig Veda, when Mitra appears, the word means friendship. Okay. I don't understand how semantically there's the name went into two to opposite directions. The figure itself goes back to at least the Bronze Age before uh, the Indians and the Iranians split off and separate people because it appears in both. Once again, outside of the Roman party cult context, he's never shown with a bull, let alone killing one. Okay. So, 
That seems to be a device that was invented somewhere between Asia and the Mediterranean. Hmm. And, well, that's the thing. I mean, Mithra's wearing pants. He's dressing like somebody from Anatolia, which coincidentally stands between the Roman Empire and Persia. Okay. In a lot of ways, it seems like this is a almost a Warshock Inbot test. You can read into it whatever you want to, you know. Well, that's the, that's the thing, because we don't really have enough, like, solid um, literature from from the time. So it seems like mostly yeah. we're just getting, like, interpretations. A lion-headed man is always sculpted to look as scary as possible. Definitely give you flashbacks if you if you read the mushrooms there. Yeah, that would be scary. But, scary. I, I, I love that um, symbol, but I totally see it as being scary. Yeah, always. The lion always it seems to be boring. And it kind of reminds me of a Gnostic statue that's never been explained, except the guy's got a chicken head. And, uh, not, and as, once it, not as cool. <laughs> chicken. Oh, uh, once chicken. again, the lion is a crane. Yeah. And also, at least one statue, possibly more, have associated them with a Persian devil. I'll tell you another thing is that they caduce use the uh, medical insignia with the two snakes going up the staff. Yeah. That's been found a couple of times in context of Mithraic temples. Yeah. And, uh,. Of course, Lion Man has two snakes crawling up him as well. Image, or that device, in mythology is almost always connected to Mercury. Main jobs is to escort the souls of the dead to the afterlife. And some people have speculated that maybe that has something to do with uh, Mithraic rituals. Hmm, interesting. You know what would be cool is, I actually read this somewhere, I wish I could lay claim to this idea, but a really good prank would be to erect a statue of Mithras killing a bull in front of the, like, stock exchange building in uh, New York uh, City. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Did somebody already do that? I don't know, maybe. Actually, I read it in a review of one of the books on Mithra, Mithras. And then, uh... It's generally taken for granted that the bull was not a domestic livestock bull. And back then, aurochs were still around, you know. And uh, I think that's what the bull's supposed to be. And certainly the Merrill Lynch bull looked like it's a bit feral. Yes. And that's something else that I've come across, that uh, Mithraic temples, some of some, they seem to have worshipped other gods. I was just thinking that the one in... Warburg in London, right next door to the Bank of England, spent its later years in life, I believe, the Temple of Bacchus. Mithraeum, the temples are found underneath churches often enough that it's speculated that Christianity, early Christians purposely built their churches on top of Mithraic temples to show dominance. I believe that. They were, they were, do they were not just dominating spiritually, but they were dominating culturally, too. Yeah, it goes hand, it went hand in hand. But Christianity is not the only religion that it's temples on top of former religions. Um, what's it? The Vatican, for instance. That's where the Watchings priest in early Rome would reside, who were oracles. Wow, and, I, I never heard and, that. And, 
Interesting. And Vatican is also the only surviving word that's cognate with the, with the god Wurgi because the Roman Wattes, well, it comes from a proto-Indo-European root, possibly, that uh, inspired madness. I never thought about, like, what was at the Vatican before the Vatican, but it makes complete sense, you know? They, they always build temples on top of temples on top of temples, or... The Temple on the Mount is like, there are three different religions oh, that lay claim to it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Abraham was supposed to attempt to sacrifice Isaac there. Christ rose to heaven from there. Right. From what I understand, there are secret passages underneath the rock. Yeah, me too. Well, that's why you studied archaeology. Well, uh, oh, yeah. I want to, like, say one thing that I read that I thought was especially inspirational. And this was actually from the Julian of Avola, who I mentioned is, like, an Italian fascist who wrote about Mithra. Actually, like, contemporary American fascists that are in the news right now, like, from BART, um, yeah. are, they worship yeah. this guy, Julian Avola. I'm, I'm not crazy about quoting him, except for what I read about him was he was, like, interested in fascism a little bit. He was also interested in Dadaism, and, like, he was all over the place. He was an intellectual who, he basically believed that humans could become greater than they were, and, or at least some of them, so there was a lot of elitism. Well, if you're going to be a fascist, at least be a diverse one, that's the way I look. Yeah, I was like, this guy was a Dadaist and a fascist? Anyway... <laughs> So I'm not crazy about the idea. I don't like his followers, but he said some interesting things about Mithras. And one of them was this, and I'm going to read it. This is a translation. He said that, so he said that the ancient sacred Roman tradition of Mithras is the esoteric view of the nature of gods and their knowledge that ultimately matters. This knowledge corresponds to an inner realization. In this perspective, the gods are not portrayed as poetic inventions or as abstractions, philosophizing theologians, but rather as the symbols and the projections of transcendent states of consciousness. The gods are, and the constellations represent, transcendent states of consciousness. He believed, this guy, Julian Evola, believed that an initiate to Mithras mysteries saw a close connection between a superior knowledge of oneself and the path which leads to the knowledge of the god and that the latter is such a noble goal that he did not shun from saying that the dominion over roman and barbarian lands paled in comparison so that it was more important to learn the nature of the gods through the mithraic mysteries than it was to actually have dominion over Roman and barbarian lands. That might just explain why so many Mithraic temples are found right on the border of Roman and barbarian lands. Yeah, maybe. At so least... in, a sense, in a sense, it's symbolic. Yeah, and some, and I'm not sure it was, I read this in this guy, Julian Ebola, or if it was in somewhere else online or in the book about mushrooms in Mithras, but one thing I read was that there actually was, one of the initiation rites was to ride a bull, like have a bull, like a bronchian bull, like in a rodeo, like ride right. a ride a bronchian bull, and then just stay with it no matter what until it's exhausted, and that was like the end of um the end of a initiation rite. Which is literally the <laughs> Maybe then they they killed him, and then they used the blood for the the baptism, the bull's blood baptism. I'm just guessing. Mm. I'm spitballing here. <laughs> well, the whole. Uh, Bull dancing goes back to the early Bronze Age Creed. Okay. When was that? The third millennium BC. 
BBC. The frescoes on the walls of Narsus show naked people jumping over balls. Wow. And, uh, of course, that's related to the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, where he, Theseus, goes to Crete to slay the bull, who the Athenians are forced to sacrifice uh, young people to. That myth is just generally considered to be a survival of some sort of prehistoric Cretan bull religion. And since they were the first power in the Mediterranean, they demanded uh, slaves from the Greeks to basically join in this bull jumping sport that they did. Wow. I mean, it sounds crazy, but in this day and age, people run with the bulls, and yeah, there's yeah. still there still are people riding bulls and rodeos. It seems crazy to me. Well, the front, the, the frescoes and Gnosis made it sound like they'd run at the bull, jump over, grab the bull's horns, the bull would jerk its head back to throw them off, and they'd jump over the back of the bull and land on their feet. Wow. That's so, what the Cretan paintings look like they're doing. So people have been doing stupid things like uh, that yeah. for thousands of years. <laughs> Jackass has existed since the early Bronze Age. Right. I I actually saw two. I saw um a bull get into another bull's pen in El Dorado, in El Dorado, Colorado. I pull. I was driving by and I saw it happen. I pulled over and watched it, and it was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Like two, they were so big and so angry and so oh, yeah. powerful. I was mesmerized, but I was also like really scared. Like I, you know, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm a suburban and city girl. I'm not a rural girl, so I didn't really understand how powerful bulls were until I saw that. And I was blown away. Like, it was a... Oh, yeah. I mean, bulls. Yeah. A whole bunch of cultures are symbols of unrestrained power. It, it all goes back to wild ox. Our domestic cattle now are bigger than domestic cattle up until the last couple hundred years. But our oxen were way bigger than modern bulls. And... Wow. Yeah, wild cattle lived... I think the last one died in the 1600s, but they were considered to be one of the more dangerous animals that existed in I, Europe. I believe it. All ox is where the word ox comes from. But the loads of, loads of religions have some sort of bull symbolism in them just because it was considered unrestrained masculine power. Okay, and, makes sense. And also there was a... You know, I don't know um, what came first, the the masculine symbol or the constellation, but the constellation of Taurus. Yeah, I never thought about that. That is a symbol for maleness, isn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> it is. And uh, and one of the things I read was that um, oh, one one person's interpretation or one school of thoughts interpretation was that the killing of the bull was actually the end of the age of Taurus. Like, there's the age of Aquarius, there's the age of Pisces. Well, this was like some past age of Taurus, and that the symbol, the symbolism of ending the age of Taurus was ending the, like, the bestial side of man um, to herald in the higher, higher knowledge. Yeah, and then... Or the divine, the divine state of man. Right, and then Mithra is 
having dinner with the son on the dead bull's hide. So the son will represent that transcendent state, I imagine. Oh, yeah, that, that's a, I like that. That makes sense. So the bull, the bull representing the animal. And Apollo, Apollo was like the, the smart, the wise, the divine, the higher, higher force of, of wisdom. And um, so, yeah, so it's like wisdom over the bestial nature. There, there are images of Mithra in a chariot like Apollo. Oh. And there are images of the sun in Mithraic context of the sun in the chariot. Anyway, like maybe it's the Apollonian defeating the Dionysian or something? Uh, wow, that could be. I can't think of any specific imagery where Mithra's associated with grapes or wine or, or anything like that. Right, except for I think, well, I read that there was definitely wine involved in their initiation, right? Oh, it's involved in everything. Yeah. Anyway, maybe we should, maybe next time we'll talk about something more contemporary, but I really enjoyed this, and I, I love learning about this ancient cult. Great talking to you, Todd. Likewise, likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to the second episode of God Trip, and next week we'll be back with a much more contemporary group. See you then.